Good morning to each of you. It's good to see you today, to gather together in a nice climate, so to speak. Uh, It's not hot. It's just about right for me. Maybe some of you are actually cold, but 70-ish degrees is just fine by me. I'm very thankful to gather together in this format and to for the Lord to bless us with this building to meet in as well. Well, today we will be continuing our exposition through the book of Philippians, and I'd encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to chapter 2. Chapter 2, we'll be looking at the first four verses only today as we consider this theme of unity through humility. Let me ask you a question as we begin. In what ways do you personally promote unity among the brethren? Think about the last few weeks. Think about the last several months. And in what ways do you, and then just to bring it a little closer to home, how do you promote unity in our church? Are there certain things that you are doing to promote unity, or are there possibly some things that you're doing that might threaten that unity, such as gossip and slander and and having a selfish ambition and these kinds of things Paul brings out in our text today? Paul will lift us to the very heights of both the humiliation and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll begin to look at that next week. But here in context is he's given an admonition, a concern, a pastoral concern for the church in Philippi that they would be of the same mind, maintaining the same love. He grounds that on the humility of Christ in the next section. Paul is laying this foundation to make a platform for an appeal to unity. The significance of this passage is that vital key doctrines of the Bible always have a practical application. And for example, he will go on to give us a beautiful description of Christ, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant. And so the very humanity, the very incarnation of Christ, has practical application to us in the text which is before us. So this call to unity is not over doctrine, as though they were debating end times theories of being dispensational or amill or post-mill or pre-mill. It wasn't over doctrine. In fact, the Philippians were pretty well grounded and very solid. They could have all signed the same doctrinal standard, the same constitution within the church, but their problem was amongst the petty bickering that was going on amongst them, the disunity that was becoming uh, apparent to Paul, the petty annoyances which were present, perhaps exerting selfish ambition and will. I submit to you that disunity is like a cancer to any local church. It will begin to eat at it a little at a time, ultimately causing the members to bite and devour one another. You might be sitting there thinking, oh, come on, we're better than that. Oh, come on, I've never seen that happen. Look at all the church splits. I mean, how many, the longer I'm a Christian, the more and more I hear of church splits where where the congregation is not able to unify. Now, I should say, some of those are over doctrine and Vital doctrine, non, non-negotiables, and that's a good thing. But oftentimes it's over personality conflicts and these kinds of things. So Paul makes, in our text, a strong appeal to unity. 
He takes, if you remember in chapter 4 and verse 2, we'll get to this, but you know the book, where he has to urge two of the women to live in harmony with the Lord. And so taking that, it implies that Paul knew that the church of Philippi needed encouragement in this area. J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican, says, humility is the very first letter in the Christian alphabet. If we will live Christian lives, we must be marked by those who are humble. So let's read the text, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 11 just to give us the broader context because it is connected. So Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he'd emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's ask for God's help once again. Our Father in heaven, we confess that we are wholly dependent upon you. We are dependent upon your sustaining power, O God. We pray that you would be pleased, O Lord, to open up the truths contained in your precious and infallible and authoritative word this day. Lord, we know that your word has much to say to our individual lives and our Christian walks this day. And we know, Lord, that in a topic that is so practical, so earthy, so down-to-earth, Lord, that, that it's easy for us to check out and sort of ignore or to pat ourselves and to deceive ourselves that we're doing well. Oh, Lord, send the Spirit that we might examine ourselves that we might be those that would be more and more conformed into the image of Christ, that we might bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So back in 127, there was a transition that would probably mark a good place to begin chapter 2, but only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That was the first command in the book. And so he strives unity even there, standing firm of one mind, striving together for the gospel, that we would not be alarmed by our opponents. And then these two gifts that we looked at last week, not only the gift of faith to believe, but what else? The gift of suffering, right? It has been granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake is said twice 
for emphasis. And then in verse 30, that whatever suffering we endure is nothing different than what Paul and the early church suffered as well. And so, as we come today to our text, the, the idea of standing firm in the gospel, we need to understand that that will never happen if we are not unified together as a church. The key to being unified is having gospel motivation, and in this case, being motivated to a biblical humility, a lowliness of mind. And these first four verses, for the sake of unity within the body, we are to mortify our pride that we see. That is to kill it, to put it to death, to shoot it, to make it no longer breathe. And then in verses 5 to 11, as we read, we have the par excellence example of humility. The second person of the Holy Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes and humbles himself and dons human flesh, being born of a virgin, being born in the major, and then living life among thousands and thousands of sinners. The par excellence of humility, not only in the incarnation, but throughout his whole life and his humanity. And we will look at that next time. In fact, this doctrine is very, very important. And, and I want you to know that it's not a, it, Paul doesn't say, now I'm about to unfold the mysteries of the incarnation, right? That, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I have a new theological nugget to give you, Philippians. What he's concerned about is it's a pastoral concern that there's some disunity, some strife amongst the brethren. And so as he gives the admonition to unity and therefore to humility, right, what does he do? He brings up the example of Christ as a result of that. And so think of it like this, 127 to 30, we spent a couple weeks on that, is Christian living in the world, the need for us to be united so that we can face a hostile world. Think of verses 1 to 4 is the importance of Christian unity as we live amongst each other. Does that make sense? It's the same kind of terminology, strive together of one mind, but in those verses it was to a world, that we might take the gospel to a world, that we might endure suffering. Here, it's among ourselves. There, it was standing against our enemies. Here, it is about cultivating humility amongst us. So the structure is this. In verse 1, you have four statements that are given. They're, they're conditional clauses in the original, but they're not, they're, they're not like, oh, they may happen, okay? They're, they're certainties, okay? It's, you could think of it as since, therefore, we have encouragement in Christ, consolation and love. The, the verb to be is supplied. It's very terse in the original. So there is, there is, there is, is, is supplied. And the, it's not even italicized because it's so assumed, but it's actually not in the original. But the point is this. You have four statements about the eternal realities that are ours in Christ. In verse 2, you have four phrases that answer that, okay? And, and that's in verse 2. And then in verses 3 and 4, we have motivations, the attitude that is required. And it's put forth as a negative, strongly contrasted to a positive. And verse 4, the same thing, a negative to a positive. So I've broken up the text like this. In verse 1, the very basis asserted. Verse 2, the action commanded. And verse 3 and 4, the attitude required. The basis asserted, 
Verse 1, the action commanded, verse 2, and then the attitude required. I was tempted to actually put verse 1 at the very end because it really is the basis, but I'm going to go ahead and just go through the text in order for us, but I, I probably will come back to it at the end. First of all, the basis asserted. What are these eternal realities that are ours? These four phrases that are set forth in a parallel fashion are the basis of Paul's appeal. It it says if in the NAS and in many translations, but you might think of it as since indeed we have encouragement in Christ, since indeed we have consolation of love, since indeed we have fellowship with the Spirit, and since indeed we have affection and compassion. You might think of it like that. But it does begin with the word therefore, and so we have to ask ourselves why is that there? Well, obviously, it's pointing back to verse 27. That transition to that first command, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. But also, it's connected to verse 30. Since we're engaged in the same conflict as even the Apostle Paul. So these are the incentives to live and obey the exhortation that he gives in verse 2 to make my joy complete by being of the same mind. This encouragement in Christ comes to us from being in Christ. It's parakalesis. It's very similar to parakaleho, to encourage. It's one of these words in the original Uh, It has a vast amount of meanings, encouragement, comfort, consoling, and all of this. I like the word comfort better over encouragement, but they're they're very similar. I mean, they're very similar. Um, And so this first phrase is, there is indeed comfort in Christ. Secondly, there is consolation of love. This word for consolation only occurs six times. It has the idea in classical Greek of speaking friendly to someone. Okay, so it's a consolation. It's, it's something that's friendly, something that's warm, not something that's agitated and proud and, and that would cause disunity. A consolation in love. We are consoled not by brotherly love necessarily or even the love of Paul, but it's the love of Christ for them and for us. Third, he says, the fellowship of the Spirit, this koinonia, the idea, this participation in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that we indeed participate with him. We have fellowship with him. Two important theological ideas, that that idea of a sweet oneness in koinonia and the idea that we are unified to God by his Spirit. Now these three, first three, some have likened uh, to 2 Corinthians 13, 14, you'll recognize this verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so they take these first three phrases and say, Paul's building this around the Trinity, and he very well may be. Okay? Comfort in Christ, fellowship in the Spirit, and in the middle you have consolation of love. You would have to supply love of God there to, to complete that scenario but it is worth noting. And then he says, at the end of verse 1, if any affection and compassion. Now this word affection means inward parts, a deep, intense, inner yearning. In fact, Paul used the word back in chapter 1 of verse 8, God is my witness how I long for all of you 
with what? The affection of Christ. With this inward pain and yearning of Christ, I long for you. And so he says affection and then compassion. Compassion, which means pity, mercy, concern. In fact, those two words are wedded together in Colossians 3.12 when it says, put on, in the that exhortation, a heart of compassion. And so what Paul is here saying is that we have this affection, this compassion, this mercy, this pity. These are realities that we have received as the people of God. These are the blessings that we have received and the basis for the unity and the humility that he will encourage These are not meant to necessarily be theological arguments, but rather a passioned pleading for the basis of what he's getting to. And let's do that. Let's get into verse 2. The basis asserted, and now the action commanded. Again, the fourfold appeal leads to the fourfold result here in verse 2. We must be unified in the same mind. Verse 2 is the main clause. In the original, by the way, you can look at your translation, there's periods. It's one sentence in the original Greek, these first four verses. And the imperative here is make my joy complete. Now, some may say, now, wait a minute. Paul's being selfish right there. He's just concerned about his own joy and his own joy being complete. No, what he's doing is he's trying to appeal to them in such a way to give them an additional motivation to this love and unity and humility. And so he says, make my joy full, or as F.F. Bruce uh, paraphrases it, fill my cup up to the brim, Philippians. Fill it up all the way to the brim by doing what? By being of one mind. By being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. For the Apostle Paul, Paul's great concern as he sits in a prison cell is not that they would continue to discover new theological nuggets necessarily, but that they would work out their salvation in the here and now. That they would truly be at peace and love with one another. For he knows that their relationship with God will be excelling to the degree that that horizontal relationships are right. Later in chapter 4 and verse 1, he can say that the Philippians was his joy in his crown. He was so proud of them. This is such a personal letter. One which, which Paul's heartbeat almost pulsates off the pages of very scripture. It's as though Paul says, my joy will only be full when I know that your disunity and your carnal selfish desires are put aside and you cultivate humility among yourselves. It's Paul's great interest. And so, make my joy complete. And in, my, in the NAS it says, by it's literally, it's a hina clause, that, but it's not a statement of purpose. This is actually the content of the appeal that is here. It's the content of what he's concerned about. And he says, first of all, being of the same mind. Now, these phrases carry the same force as an imperative. This idea of being of the same mind, it's a word that Paul has used before that he uses ten times in this letter. 
It's phroneo, and it means to have the same mind, to develop an attitude based on careful thought, to be minded, to be disposed to something. That's the force of what it has to say. It occurs twice in verse 2 with the four phrases, the first and the last. Being of the same mind, and then at the end, intent on one purpose, means thinking literally as one, that we are to think together as one. And so the word occurs twice there. Let me show you where it occurs next. Just look in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, think, intent, developing an attitude based on careful evaluation and thought. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Picture a father on his deathbed, and he calls his five children around him. And, and, and he knows that he's going to be passing into eternity to be with the Lord, but he calls his children around them, and he says, if you have loved me, as I have sought to train you and instruct you and to ground you in the things of God, do me this one thing, have the same love one for another. Give yourself to loving one another and to glorifying the Lord. Have this attitude in yourselves which you also had saw in me. Of course, in between those two thinking expressions, Paul gives two affectionate terms, having the same love and literally being one-souled. So a paraphrase might read something like this. Because my heart embraces yours, My fullness of joy depends on your growing unity with one another. So it grieves me to hear that you have tensions among you. Realize those tensions are from selfishness and vain conceit. Stop wounding each other and swallow your pride. Cultivate humility and this will complete my joy. Isn't that a good paraphrase of the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul? Well, after this imperative and this first phrase, there's three participles here, and let's just look at them quickly. Being of the same mind, okay? Paul has already talked about being citizens of heaven, striving together uh, side by side, sort of that military metaphor, and now he's telling them amongst themselves to be of the same mind and to have the same love. This is a present tense participle. It doesn't mean that we love on Sunday only. (laughs) It's all the time. Always loving, you could translate it. And this is true biblical love, brethren. This is not some mushy emotional sentimentalism. It is a true biblical love, and it speaks of a reciprocal love. As we love one another, we receive love from others. And that's not the motive for that, but that's a natural outflow And so our corporate love must be that we have been loved by God. That's what motivates it. And then he says, united in one spirit. It's literally being one-souled. It's one word in the original. And it means to live in harmony. And it's not based on uniformity, but rather unity and diversity. It's literally one-souled in the original. So you know the term soulmate. Oh, he's my soulmate. Over there, she's my soulmate. Like, like we have so much in common, right? That's what he's commanding. That's what he's telling the Philippians to be like. No, it's not that you try to get others to be exactly like you. 
I love the diversity that we share, not only ethnically, but personality-wise and all of that. But when it comes to Christian principles, what we believe about God, how we live the Christian life, we should be alike. We're not called to agree with everybody and every little tiny thing, but we are called to love one another from the heart and to seek to be unified. And that last phrase there, intent on one purpose, literally means thinking the same thing, thinking as one. And again, that's not that, oh, we would just go around like robots. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that we would be unified in the big things. Romans 12 and verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. So this strong bond is grounded in the gospel. Brethren, it it acts like shock absorbers or stabilizers, as it were, to our church and the various relationships that we have. In other words, our relationships will be strong because we have this unity centered around Christ. It's the stabilizers, it's the shock absorbers that keeps us from bottoming out or a wheel flying off as we hit the potholes of the trials of this life. The relationship that we have amongst each other so that we can address the differences when there are differences with grace and love. We don't grow bitter and we don't begin to resent but we address when there is differences or when there is conflict, and there will be conflict, right? We address those with grace and with love, thinking the best. And this unity, and I, I say it a lot, I'll, I'll say it again, is not at the expense of truth. Okay, so when we re- received requests, as Steve and I did, to participate in an ecumenical effort to feed the poor with multiple denominations, including Muslims, we have to say we can't really participate in that. We serve a different God. It wouldn't be right to say that, oh, we all, we're all doing this in the name of our gods, and he's just kind of blends together somehow uh, up in the sky. No, we serve a different God than the Muslims. <laughs> and so we can't unite side by side with them. We're happy to dialogue with them. We're happy to present what we believe to be the truth to them. But we can't pretend before the world that we're serving the same God because that would be communicating deceit and a lie. And so Blanchard says, when the Bible speaks about church unity, it speaks about unity not at the expense of truth, but on the basis of it. You see, it is the truth that what we believe that motivates us to unity. Let me give you one example. John Owen has an excellent work in his works called Communion with God. He addresses the inter-Trinitarian communion and fellowship that the Trinity enjoys in all of its complexities. And then he goes, he goes on to set forth how the believer can have fellowship with the Father in particular, and then with the Son in particular, and then with the Spirit And so just as the Holy Trinity has a sweet, pure fellowship amongst themselves, so too we are to have this sweet, pure relationship amongst ourselves based on the truth of what we believe about God, what we believe about 
the Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us, what we believe about the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, sanctifying, reassuring us of our salvation, and so forth. So that's the action commanded. We saw the basis asserted, the action commanded. Now let's get into the meat of our passage, the attitude required, verses 3 and 4. And notice what I said. I said there's a negative and a positive in verse 3, and a negative and a positive in verse 4. Let's look at verse 3 first. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Taken together, this speaks of carnal selfishness, self-advancement. And so he's saying, do not be motivated by these things. Do not live your life according to these principles. And this first term, selfish ambition, has the idea of meaning uh, selfishness, obviously, a deep-seated desire for personal preeminence. Personal preeminence. I need to be noticed and I need to be appreciated amongst the people. And if I'm not noticed, and if I don't receive verbal praise, and I don't receive whatever your criteria list is, I'm going to the next church where I can receive that. Selfish ambition. Having self-motives motivate what you do. James addresses this in in his letter, actually twice in chapter 3, but in verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, There is disorder in every evil thing. See, when there's selfish ambition, there's never going to be peace and unity. There's disorder. And James even says, in every evil thing. Now, Paul had used this word earlier. Look back in chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17. He's talking about, in verse 15, some, to be sure, preaching Christ from envy and strife, some from goodwill, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I was appointed for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Or she goes on to say, Christ is proclaimed, and so I rejoice. But notice he says here in verse 17, some proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. So here you are, you're the Philippian church, you're having this letter read to you 10 years, 12 years after Paul was there, and you're listening, and you know, he gets to this part, whoever's reading it, the elder presiding, uh, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, and we think, well, that's terrible, those preachers with selfish ambition and all of that, and then it goes on, and then conduct yourselves, and now in verse, chapter 2 and verse 3, he's reading, and he's telling the people in the church, to do nothing out of selfish ambition. What Paul does is he turns the tables on what he had pointed to. Those preachers have selfish ambition, and now he goes like this, you have selfish ambition. He turns the tables on them to diagnose the very cause of their disunity and their interpersonal friction. Paul is not addressing blatant sins of greed and anger and, uh, you know, adultery. He's not addressing that within this church. He's addressing things that are hidden, 
things that are subtle, things that we can't see into each other to actually give an accurate reading. We can assess in general. So ask yourself, am I wanting to be noticed? Are you self-serving while serving in the name of Jesus Christ? Are you wanting recognition for what you do and who you are? Are you envious of others? Turn to Matthew chapter 20 for a moment. Matthew 20. And verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said, command in your kingdom that these two sons of mine may sit on your right and your left. And Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said, oh, we're able. And he said, well, my cup you shall drink. But to sit at my right and my left, this is not mine to give. But this is for those to whom it has been prepared by the Father. After hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles rule it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you shall be his servant. So notice, the sons of Zebedee, the mother, comes. Oh, I just want the best for my two sons and so forth. And and I don't think the sons of Zebedee, James and John, I don't think they're thinking, no, 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 mom, no, no, we're happy to be in the back. No, they have this desire as well, right? And so what does Jesus say? Whoever wants to be great, you want greatness, it's not sitting on the right or the left. It's being a servant. It goes on, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Isn't that a beautiful passage? Doesn't that fit so well right here? You don't need the seat of prominence. Ask yourself, am I desiring that? And then he goes on to the second vice, empty conceit, the NAS has it. I think the ESV has conceit. Um, The idea here, this translates a word that only occurs once, but it's a compound word that means empty glory. Empty glory, vain glory, I think is what the King James had of it. And so, in other words, seeking glory for yourself that ultimately is hollow and vanity. This word speaks of an exaggerated self-evaluation. So, yes, I examine myself and, oh, I'm the best thing that's ever happened to this church. And, oh, I'm this elevated self-evaluation to where you puff yourself up and you blow yourself up to a balloon about ready to explode, you've made yourself so big in your own mind. That's empty conceit, empty glory. It's a glory that exists only in your own mind, and it becomes really an idol. Paul will actually weave together both of those terms for us in this next section, right? Jesus Christ, who what? Emptied himself, kenos. And right, and then he was glorified, 
to the right hand of God. And so he uses this word, it's a negative sense, this self-vain, empty glory. But these are the very terms that he'll use in the next few verses to contrast the vastness between Christ emptying himself, the lowness of his humility and his incarnation, and then the supremacy of his glory before the Father. So Paul weds these terms together, separating by a few verses, explaining the redemptive mission of Christ. So what are some of the sorts of things that contribute to disunity? Pride, conceit, selfishness. Here's one, a critical spirit. Every Sunday, I've got my list of things. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? Why did they do that? That's not contributing to the unity, brethren. The true obstacle to unity is not the presence of differing opinions about, I like all hymns, I like all courses, choruses or whatever, whatever the opinion may be, the color of the carpet, but rather a strongly opinionated self-centeredness, that it's my way or the highway. That's what contributes to disunity. Or maybe it's this party spirit. Well, this preacher I listen to all the time, and he's my guru, and, and, and he's, you know, so forth. Well, what does it say in Corinthians 1.12? Paul talks about this. Now, I mean this, that each one of you are saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. He's, he's speaking in that context of it's so foolish for Christians to divide into camps and groups and all of that when we should all be united under the headship of Christ. Brethren, the antidote to the selfish ambition is sweet humility. Sweet humility. And that's what he goes on to say. Do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit, but, okay, and this is a very, very strong contrast that's here, but, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. What a huge contrast from this self-inflating conceit and, and puffing yourself up in this selfish ambition to you lower yourself and you esteem others as more important. This isn't worshiping, don't, we're not talking about that, but you magnify others before yourself in your mind. The word here means lowliness of mind. In fact, it's a compound that means humility and thinking. Thinking low would be a literal translation. Now, before the New Testament, this, the words that we have, various variants, did not really exist. Okay? These were Christian terms. Uh, the idea of something that would be along the lines of humility would be something that would be strongly looked down on in the Greco-Roman society. In other words, you'd be a few bricks short of a full load because it was a term of derision. It was a term that conveyed weakness and lack of freedom and subjection. Why would anybody want to be humble or exhibit humility? We're strong, and you fight for what you have, right? Well, Jesus himself said, as he described himself, take my yoke upon me, for I am gentle and what? Lowly in heart. We read earlier how humility, how humility is favored before God. 
Isaiah 57, thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. Well, about then we're about to cower back the holiness of God. But then notice he says, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contract. contrite. Let me ask you a question today. Are there areas in your life where selfish ambition still rears its ugly head? The desire for self-exaltation, is it so great that you will put others down who get in your way so that you can exalt self? These are questions we need to examine ourselves Is there someone maybe that you need to seek forgiveness from today? That maybe you've unduly criticized or gossiped about or put down in some way or fashion that that is wrong and it's selfish ambition. He goes on to say, humility of remind in this, regard one another is more important, literally more superior than yourselves. To regard them, to count them, is more superior. Jesus Christ demonstrated this beautifully as he washed the disciples' feet in that upper room, setting there, and as he takes the towel and he washes their feet and he displays that humility before them. How can we promote this oneness, and humi- uh, unity, and humility? Well, it's not this, to grin and bear it. I'm just going to try to love those people today. Oh, it's so hard. I'm just going to try to do my part. No, what's that going to do? That produces resentment and ultimately will lead to bitterness. No, the answer and the solution, my brethren, is to be amazed by his grace for you that God would love you so much, a depraved, wicked sinner that deserves the wrath of God, but yet he would save you and give you the great privilege of experiencing salvation in this life, give you the great privilege of, of being a part of a church that seeks to faithfully explain the Scriptures week after week so that you might be grounded and prepared for glory. In, in other words, the answer and the key is not to grin and bear it, but to be amazed by his grace for you in particular. Do not think that you're the best thing that's ever come before the church. That Where would the church be without me? That's folly. That's idolatry. Throw that away and come to see Christ as he's proclaimed. Come and be a part of a church that loves the Lord Jesus Christ, that wants to see him exalted. We pray it again and again. May Christ be exalted in him only. We don't want any man to be exalted in this congregation. We need the pride of man to be humbled so that we might be true worshipers of King Jesus. And then verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Okay, first of all, this is not saying just be, to be totally blind about your personal... No, you have a responsibility to care for yourself and your family, so don't take this to its extreme. Uh, you might think of it like this. Verse 4 is an expansion of verse 3. It tells us what humility will look like. 
Do nothing from selfishness, vain conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, and here's this big contrast, but for the interest of others. This word for looking out is scopio. It's where we get telescope or microscope. It's something that we, when you look at a telescope, and if you're camping with friends and a friend of ours, Dan, would bring his big telescope and we could look at Saturn with the rings. You don't just go like this, eh, quick look and walk away, right? No, you're, you're, you're looking at it for minutes. You're contemplating. You're thinking about it. You're examining all the details of the rings and the beautiful colors. That's the idea that this word conveys. It means, the lexicon definition, to pay attention to, to watch closely, to look at critically, Okay, that's what this word means. And so when it says that we're to look out, not for our personal interest, but for the interest of others, it's to look critically of how we might be a blessing to others. It's to give it more than, uh, you know, a second thought of how you might be a blessing to others. To see and anticipate the needs that they might have. To fulfill what it says in Romans 12, to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving what? preference to one another, deference and preference to one another for Christ's sake. C.J. Mahaney has a great book on humility, and in it he says, humility is accurately seeing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our own sinfulness. When you study your own sinfulness, or even the doctrine of sin, contrasted with the holiness of God, that is a motive to slaying pride. One way to cultivate humility is to ask yourself this question, who is the most sinful person that you know of? I'm talking about personally. Oh, well, such and such, serial rapist. Oh, such and such, mass murderer, right? No, I'm talking about personally. I'm not talking about CNN and Fox. Who's the most wicked person that you know? It's you yourself because you alone see all the inclinations of your heart, the depravity, the depths of depravity of your own heart. Who's the worst person that you know? It, it, It is you because there's so many sins that go Um, unconfessed to others or or that are not made public. There's so many thoughts that you think throughout the course of a day, much less a month, that are cataloged. Thoughts of lust, thoughts of of idolatry, and all of these things that accumulate. And, and, And so you are the most wicked person that you should know. And so what should be your response to others? It is humility. Thanking God again for the salvation that you have received. Now, so now you see why the basis fits so well here at the end. Therefore, since indeed, I'm going to read it how I would translate it. Since indeed, there is encouragement in Christ, consolation in love, fellowship with the Spirit, and affection and compassion, that is pity and compassion, Make my joy complete, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, cultivating humility and looking out for the interest of others. So we've seen the basis asserted in verse 1, the action commanded, 
and the attitude that is to be required in us if we will cultivate unity through humility. Well, very quickly in conclusion, Jesus Christ in his priestly prayer in John 17 prays a few times for unity, that they would be one. If this is Jesus's final prayer as we know it before he's crucified, and that prayer that's recorded in that long extended upper room discourse that we have in the last third of the Gospel of John, and the very words that Jesus is praying, and that is such a weighty factor for Jesus Christ, woe to anyone that would disrupt the unity of his church, of his bride. Unity in the church is such a vital thing. It must be maintained, it must be guarded, it must be promoted. And the Bible has much to say about it. Romans 12, once again, let love be without hypocrisy. That means let it be pure. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another, and brotherly love, give preference, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Verse 16, be of the same mind towards one another and do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Maybe we could read verse 3 after he says that our lives should be living sacrifices. He says, In verse 3 of Romans 12, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, what? Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sound judgment. There you have some of those terms there used again by Paul. Cultivate humility, brethren. How do you do that? You say you just can't put it on. It's not like taking off a red shirt and putting on a blue shirt. It's just not that simple, is it? Oh, that it was that simple, right? But it's not. And so let me just give you a few helpful, helpful hints. Uh, study the attributes of God. As you meditate, and I mean not just read a list and run off, but meditate on the holiness of God, on his perfections, on his infinity, on how he is transcendent. Meditate on all the wonders of what makes God, God. And then even in all of his perfections and holiness, how he can be merciful, how he can be long-suffering towards sinners. And then meditate on the sinfulness of man. I mean, read the book of Genesis. All Ten Commandments are broken in in the book of Genesis before you even get to Exodus where the Ten Commandments are actually given. Why? Because Adam fell and and sin spread to all men. And you see murders and deceit and lying and adultery and molestation and all of that in the book of Genesis before the Ten Commandments are even given. So meditate on the utter sinfulness of man and how it is a wonder that God did not wipe every one of them out and throw us all into hell. That he would show his grace and mercy upon a people is amazing. It is astonishing. And that is only because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. 
meditate on those things. You can see as you meditate on those things, you see how little and how undeserving you really are so that whatever you receive, you can rejoice in. Meditate, or sorry, maintain a teachable spirit. Don't think you've got it all figured out. I I say it all the time, always a disciple. We are all always learning, always coming to a fuller understanding of the Scriptures. Always a disciple. Maintain a teachable spirit. Be open to correction. And then meditate on the cross of Christ. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss in what? Poor contempt on all my pride. Spurgeon said, let us be humble that we may not need to be humbled, but may be exalted by the grace of God in due time. And if you're here today and you're outside of Christ, And I believe that there are some here today who are outside of Christ, who are not following Christ, who are not born-again Christians. You cannot please God because you're living to please yourselves. And when we're outside of Christ and we have not come to know Christ, that's what it's all about. Numero uno uno, right? It's it's exalting self. It's your best life now. (laughs) Kind of funny that that's a so-called Christian slogan, but that's really the unbeliever's uh, outlook on life. I beg you to flee to Christ. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life. Jesus Christ laid down his life for sinners. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You say, well, near? Where is he? Well, I see an image, but no, where is No. He's near today in the day of mercy. The door of mercy stands wide open if you will but confess your sins, repent of your sins, and cry out for salvation. That he is near to you if you will cry out. He knows your heart. He can see into your mind and see all the hidden motives of the heart. Call upon him while he is near. The verse goes on to say, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, he will abundantly pardon. Forsake your wicked way. Forsake your narcissism of loving and exalting yourself and throw that under the bus and come empty-handed. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling and come to Jesus believing that he has died for your sins upon the cross. Believing in faith that he is the only Savior that could rescue you and he will come and he will breathe life into you. God delights in mercy. Why would you harden your heart Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have not obliterated the whole human race, our propensities to sin and besetting sins and selfish ambition and self-exaltation are so prevalent, certainly prevalent in the unbeliever and even as redeemed, those who have had the, the power of sin broken, it still rears its ugly head from time to time. Humble us, O God. We might be those who can display a Christ-like humility. 
Lord, we pray that you'd preserve the unity of this church, and we thank you for the sweet unity that we've enjoyed these past few years, and we pray that that would continue and magnify and even be an example unto others. Lord, cultivate greater measures of the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. And if there be any here who are outside of Christ, may today be the day of salvation. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.